Welcome to the World Architecture Festival podcast. This series features recordings from the annual festival, where architects and commentators discuss the latest challenges and innovations in the industry. Make sure you subscribe to always receive the latest episode and also follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at WorldArchFest. Right, good afternoon, welcome back. Um, this is, I think, the final session uh, on the stage, the Festival Hall stage. And I have to say, having uh, worked on each of the uh, nine festivals we've done since 2008, um, they always go incredibly quickly. It seems like five minutes ago we were starting off on Wednesday morning. Um, but um, we've, uh, I think, kept a very, very high standard of presenters and presentations and, I hope, thematic content as well uh, uh, across the festival. And uh, on that note, I'm delighted to introduce Jeannie Gang, who uh, is the principal of Studio Gang, who are based in Chicago, but you now have an office in New York, uh, working internationally, um, uh, taking part in competitions across the world, uh, uh, but perhaps best known for some very interesting and I think socially engaged and uh, uh, projects that engage with the community, but in a very sophisticated and imaginative way in Chicago. And your subject today is housing in Chicago. Oh, thanks, Jeremy. Um, hi, everybody. I'm, today I'm going to talk about Chicago housing, but also I think it applies to a lot of other housing around the world. Chicago is a city of about 2.3 million people, but overall, like in, including all the um, urban area, urbanized area around it, it's about 10 million people. Um, um, I just felt like a need to respond to last night a little bit um, because it applies directly to Chicago that um, there's rising inequity in in uh, the world, and this is a graph taken out of the Thomas Piketty book, but also the New Yorker showing that um, these days there's even more and more um, inequity. Uh, the only golden period was the time right after the stock market crash and World War II where things were closer than ever together. Um, but this is playing out directly in the housing market um, in Chicago. So. And U.S. is actually the most unequal of all the countries in terms of the gap between rich and poor. Um, but where does all the money come from? You know, you have to ask yourself, is it, is it true that people are just feeding off the teat of the government, as we heard last night? But I think there's a different story. And if you look at the top 1% and the point. 1%, most of the money is being made off capital that has already been acquired. So in other words, it's not from work. It's not that people are not working. It is the fact that if you already have money, it's a lot easier to make a lot more money. And it's very hard if you're working one or two or three jobs, like the people I know in Chicago, to get anywhere near ahead. So today I'm going to talk about four parts of the housing ecology in Chicago, um, and they consist of public housing, affordable housing, and those two are kind of close together, um, and then market rate housing and above market rate housing. So just a little bit of a history lesson. In, in what's happening in public housing is that um, there has been a destruction of the number of units of public housing in the city over the last few years. 
um, and the free market has been invited in to reimagine the public uh, housing through what's called public-private partnerships. So I'll show you. So if everyone remembers, um, um, there was a big uh, uh, boom in public housing construction in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and um, as these buildings were being constructed, some in Chicago, um, they were also being challenged um, because there was there was a an inequity in the way that the housing was situated, and there were lawsuits that required um, um, these housings to be distributed more equally throughout the city, especially in Chicago. But the result of that was really less management, less money being paid uh, attention to, and the loss of all these units. Each one of those buildings had about a thousand units within them. So what's happening lately? is an overall reduction of public housing units. Um, it, it pretty much divides out to being um, a third, a third, and a third. Uh, when you take down one of these public housing projects, the new things that come in, which are shown down here, these kind of new urbanism type um, developments, uh, the, overall we lose units of public housing. And what has happened is that uh, people that used to live in a community in the public housing are now dispersed into all different communities. So it's a kind of, um, this dispersal has created a lot of tension in the city and we have had, uh, the gang violence in Chicago has, has changed. So before it was kind of organized and control, now it's on a block by block basis and we have um, kids that can't cross across one block to the next without crossing a gang line. Um, so it has had a, a very detrimental effect we see in retrospect in taking down uh, the, the public housing. Um, just one example, this is an interesting historical example of Lathrop housing, a very beautiful project that was built in the 30s and the city of Chicago wants to redevelop this. It, it had about a thousand units at one time. It's a low-rise development, um, but it was closed in 2011 and put up for a public-private partnership. So the, the number of public units went from 925 to 400 units. This is scheduled to be open in in 2018, um, and it will have also market rate and um, affordable units within it as well as commercial. And so everyone that lived there is now uh, dispersed out into the city. So I'm going to skip to the, the last part and then go back to the middle. Um, in, in the high-end uh, area of housing, you have luxury housing, which takes two forms in Chicago. One is basically the de-densification of neighborhoods um, without zoning, um, without any zoning, um, zoning restricts how many units you can put on a, a site, but it doesn't restrict how many units you can take off a site. So what we're seeing in Chicago is areas that were formerly dense are being purchased up by um, high wealth individuals and putting big mansions on them. And, and so we're wiping out more people out of the city footprint and putting big mansions on the sites. So you have de-densification and you also have um, super tall towers. Um, in de-densification, this is just a screenshot of um, 
what's happening. Sometimes seven city lots that had uh, perhaps 30 people living on each lot are now being combined and turned into one big mansion that might have a family of three. And the architecture, without any regulations, of course, because it's okay to go downsizing and not upsizing, you end up with houses like the one on the, the which was built last year or the year before, um, kind of faux mansions that are taking up a lot of space in a formerly dense neighborhood. On the other end, um, you have high-rise towers, and we are actually designing one of these, um, which is this building called Vista. And it was kind of disturbing for me when we first started the building because I didn't really know who was going to be living there. Um, but it was on a site very in the right in the downtown. Um, uh, we're doing a project that has about 750 residents on a very small footprint. Uh, but one of the public aspects of it besides the units, and it has a hotel, apartments, and condominiums, is making the, um, these three stems bridge over a public way to give access to the river. So there's a kind of a, a public aspect to the building that's unusual, because most times um, tall buildings are not allowed to be entered uh, by the public. Most of our work has been in these two other areas, the affordable and the market rate housing. And so, you know, as you've seen, I'm, I'm categorizing housing in terms of like how much it costs to live there. Um, but what we see in affordable are micro units showing up on the marketplace, student housing that is uh, either subsidized by the university where it's, it's placed, and sometimes student housing falls into market rate housing for expensive housing. And then we have market rate housing, which a lot of the projects we've been doing are either adaptive reuse or new towers in, in areas that had low density. These are some of the micro units that are being planned in Chicago, not by us. Um, there's also this aspect of Airbnb, which is filling up this market. Some people argue that Airbnb is taking units off the, um, out of, out of uh, accessibility for um, affordability, so there's new regulations that are starting to impact Airbnb units, which is a whole other lecture. Um, but mostly what we see coming on the market are new rental apartments, and rental apartments, all of those red dots are new building, brand new buildings uh, that contain only rental apartments, and they're combinations of market rate units and affordable units. Um, so you can see down below, 2016, Chicago is adding 3,800 units, and in 2018, we'll be adding every year for the next few years, there's going to be a lot of new rental apartments coming online. Uh, one of the ones that we recently completed is City Hyde Park. This was a building on a former parking lot in Hyde Park neighborhood, which is near the University of Chicago. And what, one thing that we've really been interested in is how to create community um, for these buildings spaces where people can connect to their neighbors and to reduce the anonymity. Um, we've been doing that through the use of something very boring, the balcony, but deploying the balcony in different ways so that people can see each other. Um, in this project, I don't know if you can read it or not, but the balconies are deployed a along this vertical stem and the all the gravity loads of the balconies come down to the ground. So we're able to disengage and thermally break 
uh, between the balcony structure and the interior, but also create this very dynamic facade where you can see your neighbors. And this just completed, it's in the process of renting out. Of course, it is playing a role in gentrification as well. I mean, it's undeniable. Um, that, but it is providing a kind of a medium range of housing plus 20% affordable housing within this structure. Everybody comes through the same door. Um, and a really playful facade and something that I think will be lively for the students, faculty, and residents of High Park who will move here. Um, those balcony stems create this incredible uh, dynamic space on the outside of the building. Sometimes these almost like cathedral-like spaces where you can see your neighbors obliquely. Um, and then it, it participates in the street life of the city. Um, another project, just two more projects to show, um, this Shoreland Hotel. Now, th this is a, a former hotel that was converted into housing, uh, market rate housing, but it wouldn't have been possible without federal subsidies because this building would have been torn down if it weren't for the federal subsidies of 20% um, tax credits to preserve a, a historic building. And so what we did here was convert an old hotel into uh, market rate spaces. And you know, and I've worked with a lot of developers and we would never see a developer putting this kind of incredible public space, uh, shared space into uh, an apartment building complex. But because it was a hotel, it actually had these spaces within it. So it's a really great project. Again, it would have been gone without the federal subsidies that helped pr provide it and preserve the building. And um, finally, we're doing student housing. This is a recent project at University of Chicago. Uh, the, the apartments inside their small dormitories, they're subsidized by the university so that students can afford to live on campus. Um, it's a 800 um, units with a dining commons. Um, and we tried to ingrain social connectivity into this space as well. First of all, really connecting to the city around it. University of Chicago is typically closed off to its environment. Um, and we created this diagonal and allowed the public and the community members to come right into the campus um, through these buildings that step down in scale. It's a very big building. We used a precast concrete uh, cladding. It has high performance. Um, some public spaces such as the dining commons where both students and members of the public are welcome to come in and eat. And so you get a mixing chamber of people within the community and the students. And within the, within the fabric of the tall building, we created these three-story lounges. They're called house hubs. And they're places where every, for every 100 students, they can meet, connect, mentor each other, and have a social connection uh, between each other for all four years of the uh, for all four years of college, so f there's a couple different designs for the house hubs, but these are places with a kitchen, dining room, study areas, and they encourage the social interaction for the students. And this gateway, as you can see, connecting to the neighborhood. Finally, the last thing I just wanted to show is more of a, a, a proposal, not a real project yet, but a way of rethinking how we address housing in our cities. Um, this is a project that we did, a conceptual project for this inner ring suburb of Cicero, Illinois, which is 
um, really where uh, um, it was formerly the place of lots of factories and lots of housing and work, but now has, as the factories have moved out, it's a place where uh, um, new arrivals, immigrants, are coming directly into the suburbs where formerly they were coming into the city centers. In the old days, the immigrants were from Poland and Lithuania, um, places like Hungary. And today, most of the immigrants who are still coming for jobs, only not factory jobs, are coming from three states, three specific states in Mexico. And without passing through the city center where services are available. Um, in 2008, there were um, 10,000 foreclosures on homes that uh, of people in Cicero, um, which caused a big problem. And this wasn't because people were sucking off the teeth of government and getting cheap loans. It was because they lost their jobs. We talked to a lot of people, and the, uh, the people there were working in two and three jobs. These are entrepreneurs. These are entrepreneurs. And they're working uh, to have a good life for their kids. They're working for that option. But without the jobs, they were starting to lose their homes. So we, we considered this inner ring suburb of Cicero a place that has um, a lot of problems environmentally, lots of pollutants that were there from the industry before, lots of foreclosure. Um, and, and how could we reimagine this place for the future, um, given its proximity to Chicago, but also given all of the talent and new arrivals coming into the doors every day. Um, the housing stock is generally little bungalows designed in the 20th century for the nuclear family. Um, but today, lots of these, these house um, many more people with different family structures. So each little bungalow is housing up to 20 people in different a variety of ways. And so we thought of a building that would be able to be flexible um, as, new, as relatives come in, as people's family conditions change, um, a building that would be an ultimate flexible space for new arrivals. Um, but we found out that new arrivals um, want to work and live in the same space, and that was not allowed by code. And the code was generally created to segregate uh, races and work and living. Uh, so we proposed this new interwoven zoning. Um, again, coming up against some of the rules that were put in place, um, not just to give architects a headache, but to actually do negative things to uh, the environment. We had to redact the zoning for Cicero because it wasn't allowed to live and work in the same space, because it wasn't allowed to have houses like this. And so we did an exercise of redacting the code. And what we propose is a new kind of distribution of uh, public amenities. For example, in a typical suburban house on the top, the public pays for uh, roads, utilities, sidewalks, parkways, all to make it possible for someone to own their own plot. And we propose changing that model to an idea where a co-op co-owned by uh, residents would own the land and the infrastructure and then people could own their own smaller unit making it more affordable but still ownership being a key factor to provide 
the sweat equity that, that people want to put into their home uh, for the future. And so in Cicero, the whole entire environment would be composed of reusing the factories, remediating them or reusing them for live workspace, um, addressing the foreclosed housing and bringing them into the co-op. So there's a variety of places to live, work, and play. But the co-op would provide um, a ready buyer for your unit. So if you need to move to another city to work, there's always a ready buyer. And the value of your home, albeit smaller and without a land underneath it, would be maintained. So the whole idea then is, is to provide, to reimagine uh, the, the former factories as a new way of living, combining living, working, and environment um, to connect back to the original city. So here's the idea. And you know, this would allow people to, as you see the, the former zoning on the bottom, residential, industry in gray, recreation in green, our zoning would incorporate all of them all together and hopefully provide opportunities for everyone. Thank you. Well, we'll share the microphone, but... <laughs> yeah. um, thank you very much. It's very interesting. I think that, that uh, obviously, you've developed a, Chicago, a Cicero scheme for a particular place in, in Chicago. Are there other suburbs that have similar conditions and, indeed, possibly parts of other cities? I think a lot of American cities, North American cities, have these inner ring suburbs that were once the place where, um, you know, you could start a family and work... You could walk down the block and go to work. In fact, there was a factory here that, ha that had 40,000 employees. It was a former AT&T, uh, Ma Bell. It was a, a, a factory that made telephone equipment. And people just walked to work and walked back to their small bungalows. That, that exists around the country, more, more in the Northeast. Um, uh, but there are places that are now becoming re really derelict. And, and they're very close to the city center. But uh, we found that that um, there was a lot of interest in creating um, new urbanism ideas of, of rail, uh, smart growth, so-called smart growth, with rail stops here. But, you know, frankly, people that live here don't commute on the rail to downtown Chicago. They're working in many other different kinds of jobs scattered around the, in, the whole region. So what would probably work better is making use of of um, technology to allow people to do ride shares and sh do car sharing, things like that, to be able to get to their jobs as opposed to this idea of the smart rail. And presumably the jobs that they do are no longer industrial in the sense that we've understood them 20 or 30 years ago. They're no longer factory-based. And if they are, they don't need to have thousands of people. These are entrepreneurs, like I said. This is not the kind of entrepreneur we were picturing yesterday who is only designing apps, but some people actually do design apps, but they also are starting businesses, service businesses, um, bakeries, landscaping, you know, like lots of cottage industry type jobs that is what is sustaining a big portion of the population right now.
And um, thinking of Chicago overall, um, you showed the Piketty graph with, with the inequality in the United States. Is Chicago a particularly bad location of that? Um, what's happened in Chicago in terms of housing and, and in income inequality is that um, housing on the lower end of the spectrum, in other words, housing in difficult neighborhoods with low income, rents have spiked up significantly. Housing in the, for the middle class, or, or like, let's say if you compared housing to someone who has income, they would be able to get a, a better, bigger space in Chicago than they would, let's say, in New York or London. So it, it's more difficult on the low end and way less difficult on the middle to upper end. And you, you spoke about the um, federal government subsidies for the converted hotel building. Does uh, Chicago City Council or the state of Illinois have any sort of policies to alleviate this? Um, I, I, what, what happened when, when the public housing projects were torn down and I, basically they, they became abandoned because there was no investment in them. They were not bad on their own in terms of architecture. But there's no investment um, in them and the city of Chicago was their, their housing authority was taken over by the federal government in the year of uh, 1996. And what happened was the federal government said, you're not providing um, equal housing. We're going to take this over and you have to, it was called the plan of transformation. You have to provide, upgrade and renovate 25,000 units of housing because you're not doing it on your own. So it was actually federal, um, intervention that came in. The city did it. They followed the, the um, federal guidelines. But in doing so, there was unintended consequences, which were basically taking down the high rise and then the dispersal of the, the dispersal of the communities. And one of the important things, and I heard last night that, you know, it's time to allow other people to occupy the city center. But you know, there's just a disregard for how much it matters to be part of a community. And when you disband a community, that there is, it's a harsh trauma. And, and the thing that happens is there's more violence. In our, in our city, uh, the gangs were dispersed. Some of the top gang leaders were jailed. And then, there, so there was a kind of a What's happening now is just a, a chaotic disbursement with no ru rules, and it's very, it's it's very detrimental to everyone. It's and you've probably read about um, the shootings and things in Chicago, and and so it was an unintended consequence of this rule. So, so the the um, I, I mean, one would normally say that jailing gang leaders was a good thing, but actually, what it's done, combined with urbanist policies has created a series of uncertainties and, and potential for violence, which is interesting. Uh, one of the things about Chicago, not knowing it very well but knowing it a little bit, um, strikes me that, that it has these, uh, that, that there's a sort of uh, movement of value across the city. You know, when 
um, the University of Chicago was built on the south side, that was the place to live. Um, and then you know, that, the, the wealth migrated, but these institutions remained where they were, bastions of privilege in, in an increasingly deprived neighborhood. I guess IIT was a bit like that as well. Um, does this change the dynamic of housing compared to other cities, do you think? Well, one, one thing that I think Chicago, the, the most current thinking on, on, let's say, social cohesion is that it actually is good to be in a community with people like you, um, and that on the city level, maybe we can think about integration. But if you just disperse everyone through, with everyone else, it's, it's hard to form community. The one thing Chicago has going for it, it's always been a city of neighborhoods, um, recent arrivals, new immigrants have bonded together and, and lived near each other. Um, and, but those things do change over time. Like uh, they, they, they tr slowly change or they dramatically change. But it still has maintained this kind of neighborhood um, quality, which I think is worth studying further. Like you mentioned with the University of Chicago, you get these it's great to have universities in, in different parts of the city because they do a lot um, to try to study the city that's right around their doorstep. And I, that's what I see with University of Chicago and they started these labs looking at um, different um, social issues around their, their doorfront and they wouldn't maybe necessarily do so otherwise. And um, I mean, some years ago, possibly 10 years ago, the book Freakonomics was published out of, out of uh, the University of Chicago, I think, or the, the, the academic who wrote it was, was, was uh, the teacher at the University of Chicago. Um, that, if I remember, touches on a number of these issues to do with gang violence and other, other things. Are there new economic ways of thinking that are emerging that may be slightly less atavistic than those described in that book? Well, the one that I was showing at the very end here is the idea of a, a limited equity cooperative LEC, which is a model that is uh, being tried out in small ways. We worked on this project with an economist, um, a, a re uh, city researchers. It was a very um, big team of a lot of different expertise, and we came across uh, an idea of this limited equity cooperative, which um, it's basically like having a mortgage that follows you with you. So you do care about the the quality of the space that you're in, and you put in sweat equity to improve that space because you are going to ultimately sell it. But it doesn't it doesn't allow you, it doesn't make you um, shackled, you know, to that one address. You can move within the network, but you still own. So, and there's always a ready buyer for you, but of course you're going to get more uh, if you have kept up your space. So I think that model is really interesting for now to look at. Yeah, yeah. No, I think so, because that's one of the things we've heard about several times, is that actually the conventions of purchase and equity and debt in order to do that are, 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 are very unhelpful. One of the, the other things which I found slightly extraordinary disturbing is where people buy three, four, five plots, not everything down on them, and then put a large house on there. Is, again, is that unique to Chicago? Because on the whole, rich people tend to be rather wary of living in poor neighborhoods, or are these neighborhoods changing anyway? Um, 
That's a good question because I think on the one hand, it's, it's great that people with wealth want to stay in the city center. And, and most of the people that have done so are people that are very committed to the city. Um, on the other hand, if you look at it as a larger trend, and I, I have seen it in other cities in North America, uh, it, it's a kind of a de-densification of the center, which, if it continues, would have a detrimental effect. Or maybe we would end up with the grand estates once again. Yeah. <laughs> but, but so I think in, it's a trend. I had a, a graph showing the amount of teardowns. Uh, the permits applied for teardowns has skyrocketed in Chicago and probably other areas. It's, 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 it's a sign of gentrification. Don't know how to solve that, but it's, it's something to keep an eye on in terms of keeping the inner city as dense as it needs to be to provide close access to jobs and work and reduce uh, carbon footprint, basically. It has, it has some benefits, and if the lots are empty anyway, it's of, it's of less consequence. But I, I mean, I think what it shows, compared to your Cicero scheme, is that you need to have some sort of design intelligence to, to make those things work, because conceivably, you could start to make a neighbourhood that has some sort of self-sustaining economic activity, has a mix of different types of people in there. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about how that worked based on the interviews you took with the people in, Cic in Cicero and how far that's developed and how much further it might need to go to become reality. What we found in Cicero was really that, you know, zoning is working against, zoning is working to preserve um, the white homeowners to keep their neighborhoods looking just like them. And, and as, the, the, as things change and the, the new arrivals are coming from different places, the zoning is maintained in order to, to keep that separation. Like it's not allowed to have more people in the home um, or to rent out, you know, bedrooms to your relatives who might be arriving, those were not allowed by zoning. And so most of the zoning is, is preventing, you know, preventing higher densities. And that, that's interesting. And that, that, that is a parallel to what we were hearing last night. Like, you know, but zoning is not, does not allow, doesn't prevent you from having lower density. Yeah. And, and I think if, if you just look at the way that zoning affects how many cars you, parking spaces you're required to have in a new development, it's a good uh, parallel. So you, they're trying to reduce the number of cars required in zoning so that people will have less cars, but the developers still want to provide more space for more cars so they can, and it, there's nothing preventing them from providing 10 car spaces per unit um, if they, they want to. Minimum. They, they have to provide a certain minimum. So we come back to these things, um, you know, which last night Patrick Schumacher was railing against, which are irrelevant uh, regulations. And there are, well, you know, whatever one thinks of the overall thesis, we could all probably think of irrelevant uh, regulations in in um, how uh, you know in, 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 in housing provision. Um, I just wonder if anyone. So I haven't allowed any space. Does anyone want to make a question or a comment about? Jeannie's presentation or housing in Chicago in general? Anyone? Well, there's, there's no obligation to, uh, to, 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 to ask, but um, I think uh, uh, 
you know, I, 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 can, I can ask some more questions if you like. If you, but do 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 think if you if you have do do, do no, okay. Um, but anyone got a question? No. Um, I suppose if one thinks of Chicago's housing. St yeah. Let me yeah. try it like this. Does, does everyone think that public housing is a benefit to society or not? <laughs> How many people think it's a benefit? It, okay. And then. It, does everyone else think it's not a benefit? How many people think it's not a benefit? Okay, so we're not saying so. If, but okay. I think I mean that, that, that's interesting. But of course, public housing can take all sorts of different forms, can't it? Yes. Uh, well, I, I, I can add to that. In Singapore, 80% of the population live in publicly owned housing, and it's only the, the, the really very rich who live in in private privately owned housing. And one has to say that housing in Singapore, um, even at the low end, is generally quite good, yeah. probably better than it is in Chicago. Oh, I would definitely agree with that. And again, the, the bad rap that public housing got, it wasn't because of the design. The design was, if we had one of the designs of, of the Cabrini Green buildings here with the concrete frame exposed with brick infill, it would have won you know, its category. <laughs> and, and so it, it ends up being it's, it's a lack of investment and purposeful like neglect uh, that that made it go downhill so it, it, there's it's we have to I think in New York there's a much stronger uh, commitment to public housing and, and the benefit that it brings than than we see in Chicago which is again it's just kind of a we're losing units. It, it's the third largest um, uh, public housing um, number of units in the country. I think there's about 20,000 um, units in the city, um, but it, it's it's definitely declining. For yeah, quick question. Hi, Jeannie. Thanks for that. Um, I only caught the last latter part of the lecture, so I'm, I'm not sure I, you've talked about it. For uh, we, we do a fair bit of housing, a lot of it is public, and the, um, we commonly seem to be, even yesterday Patrick Schumacher talk of it, talked about it as, in the context of it being a commodity. And we've, we've, as architects, as profession, maybe driven by developers, but maybe driven by pressures, we keep on talking about it as a unit of exchange and uh, I have to constantly remind myself that we're talking about homes rather than housing. And we, we try to call it homing in the office in order to, to, to sort of think of people living there and living their lives there as opposed to just being a container for life. So obviously you're giving thought to that. So maybe you can give us some of your perspective. I like the idea of taking the word unit out of it. <laughs> it's, it's really such a, a transactional uh, term. And again, I think what we're seeing in, in terms of communities, and the communities, everybody benefits if the communities are healthy, thriving, and active. And so, and, and to do that, um, trying to knit communities together, it's not just about the, the housing, but it's all the other things. And we've, we have been uh, recently working on a project called the Civic Commons, which is funded by the Knight Foundation um, and the Kresge Foundation to look at um, 10 cities. The first one was uh, a, south, a neighborhood in southwest Philadelphia. Another one is Memphis. 
and, and to look at how to use all the public assets that exist, schools, police stations, transit hubs, um, libraries, and housing, um, and, and to reimagine them for the future because they were kind of designed for one thing in mind, like a library is designed with um, solid walls up to here so you can have bookshelves. But today, the library is really the hub of job finding. And, and so what we've been doing is applying a, a method that we started doing, which is assessing all the public assets, looking at what the, the, the people assets are, because there's always people who are very strong in these uh, communities, and matching them together to re um, to re-network these communities because it is it's about the the community and all the parts, not just the housing part. It's so true. Thanks. So when uh, I didn't put my hand up for either one, and uh, partly because I think you have to qualify public housing in the nature of the way it's been designed in the past, and I think the challenge with it is this sort of monocultural mono single function aspect to it that's made it a failure in communities because it doesn't really create a, a city or an urbanism. It really creates a, just a single type. And I think that's where it starts to fail. And you see that around Berlin actually quite a bit. And so I'm wondering if you have, I, I think you, you have addressed in some of your projects, but maybe the idea of, of mixed use as a, as a, uh, a, a way to create public housing that actually is more successful. And I was wondering if you had thought about doing that in terms of manufacturing or that sort of thing in the Cicero project. Could you talk a little about that? Okay. Um, no, that, that's true. I think, again, it was a disinvestment in, in the housing, like not having transit stop at the housing projects or having its own particular uh, police force as opposed to a common police force that all d added up to, you know, the problems that were going on. But the problems have not gone away since we've taken down housing. They just got more dispersed. But I think in terms of, like, matching up, uh, one of the things Chicago is doing, for example, is, is um, allowing people to build more FAR, if more floor area on the projects downtown if they adopt a neighborhood outside the city center and, and invest in that neighborhood. So I think the, the current idea is that, you know, if you want more area, you need to also get put back and invest in the bigger city. And so some of the investments have been uh, workspace or, you know, job creation, um, not, you know, that are they're located next to public housing projects projects and affordable housing projects in the inner, inner ring. Good. Well, thank you very much for a uh, very interesting presentation and for some good questions. And um, before we thank Jeannie, um, I just want to finish with a comment that was made to me by Richard Sennett, a sociologist some years ago, who grew up in Cabrini-Green and was involved with a citywide initiative in Chicago, particularly looking at the poorer neighborhoods as to how some of the social problems might be alleviated. And someone had come up with the idea of planting lots of trees. And of course, the trees died or were vandalized or whatever very quickly. And then Richard suggested that maybe you name an individual from the neighborhood who is responsible for the tree and someone else is responsible for the next tree. And the vandalism almost stopped 
And so the idea of having some sort of investment, even if it was a tree rather than a home, had some sort of benefit on, on social activity. So there are ways of doing this, and I think you've shown us some more, which more to do with architecture than that. And thank you very much.